If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want to stay in the know about what's happening with the History Extra podcast, then check out our brand new podcast club page at historyextra.com forward slash podcast hyphen club. There, I'll be bringing you updates and sneak peeks from behind the mic, letting you know what we've got coming up and suggesting some fascinating further reading on the topics that we're discussing. Plus, you can submit the burning questions you'd like to see answered by experts in our Everything You Want to Know series. Just head to historyextra.com forward slash pod hyphen club to find out more. That's historyextra.com forward slash pod hyphen club. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Agatha Christie is the queen of crime fiction. Her 80 books and their countless TV and film spin-offs have captured the imaginations of generations of murder mystery fans. But the author's own life was also full of drama and mystery. From her real-life inspirations for fictional poisonings to her famous 11-day disappearance in 1926. Public historian and broadcaster Lucy Worsley has written a new biography of Christie. And Rhiannon Davis spoke to her about the crime writer's dramatic life. So thank you so much for joining me today, Lucy. 
My pleasure. Very happy to be here. I'm a regular listener of this podcast myself, so it's it's great to be you know actually oh, in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm very excited to delve into Agatha Christie. And for my first question, what made you decide to write a biography of her? Well, I uh, have got a bit of a <laughs> an obsession, shall we say, with detective fiction. And I, I had written before about the history of detective fiction. And I'm also really interested in female writers. Uh, that's a topic I covered before. So the, both of these things seem to come together here. And also, I felt that there was perhaps a gap in the market, if you like, for a look at her life through the eyes of a historian. What a, it was such a long life. She was born in 1890, died in 1976. And uh, her books, to me, they're not just entertainment. They're a record of the social history of the 20th century. And I thought it might be nice to look at her as a historian. So, so yeah, she's a genius. She's an artist. She's a creator. But she's also, in some ways, a representative woman of her time. And a lot of the things that happened to women in the 20th century happened to her. So what kind of world is she born into then? Well, she was born into a family with money. And I, th I think that's so important for a lot of the things that would happen to her later. Um, her father was American, which I think is important because it gives her this international perspective on on life, particularly British life, right from the start. One of the things people get wrong about Agatha Christie is thinking, oh, she's she's sort of quintessentially English. Well, no, no, she was she was a globe trotter herself, and her family were globe trotters. And it is outsider perspective that's very important for any novelist, I think. And they lived in uh, Torquay on the uh, south coast of Devon, and she lived a very comfortable life in a Victorian villa with lots of money and a beautiful garden where she tells us she used to play with her imaginary friends. So she was she was getting going early on, making up stories. And what would expectations be like for a woman of her social class at that time? Get married. She was supposed to get married. That that she described her, you know, the philosophy of the people in her childhood as waiting for the man. The man was going to come along. He would change your life and everything was directed towards that, really. So her parents didn't bother to educate her properly. No, that's that's not quite fair. That's not quite fair or true. Um, she had this older sister, significantly older than her, and the older sister had been sent to a boarding school. And the older sister, I feel, was at the boarding school, given some of the values of what was called the new woman in the later 19th, early 20th century. A sort of, it was a sort of middle-class view of what femininity could be. And you should be educated and you should try hard and you should break barriers and you should go out into the world. But clearly her parents didn't think that this was a success. And Agatha's older sister didn't go to Girton or anything like that, which is what perhaps the school would have wanted. The parents brought her home and she was put onto the marriage market and she got married very successfully to the heir of a uh, a Manchester business fortune and she ended up with a huge, huge house. Uh, and the idea was very much that Agatha herself would follow the same route, minus the inculcation with the values of the new woman at boarding school. So throughout her whole life, Agatha would never speak in favour of, you know, emancipation or, or, or women's capacity or anything like that. But even though she didn't say that she held feminist values in any sense at all, I think we can deduce some of those things in her actions. We'll probably come on to that later. 
well, let's dive into it now. I mean, how how could she be seen to be a feminist woman? Well, throughout her whole long life, Agatha kept up this public image that uh, she somehow wasn't a professional working writer which clearly she was. <laughs> I mean, she wrote roughly 80 books. Her books have existed in 2 million paper copies, it's estimated by now. Uh, she's the writer who's been translated into the most languages after the Bible and Shakespeare. This is the kind of thing that's always said about her. What strikes me is that, unlike God <laughs> and Shakespeare, she's she's female. That often gets kind of weirdly glossed over. And that is something that's partly her own doing. She she never wanted to be taken seriously as a professional. And that's partly because of the values of her childhood. And also, I believe, partly because of something very bad that happened to her in 1926. 1926 is the great sort of pivot point of Agatha Christie's life. And in it, she went through um, a, a huge incident of public shaming, I think we'd call it today. And a lot of newspaper articles were written about her in which her professional success was definitely a bad thing. So after 1926, she never spoke of herself in those terms again. In fact, on her on her passport, you'd think that as her profession, she might put down writer or author or something like that. It actually said housewife. Housewife. Agatha Christie called herself a housewife, which I find fascinating. Do you think other female writers have taken inspiration from her, though, despite her distancing herself from her career? Yes. If you look at what she did as opposed to what she said, oh, she's a she's an amazing person who changed the entertainment industry, not just as a female writer, as, but also as somebody who um, was extremely productive on into old age. I would say that in the 1950s and the 1960s, when she'd kind of become more than a novelist, she'd become a playwright. And a lot of her works began to be turned into films in the 1960s. She became this sort of global entertainment brand. And one of the things that particularly appeals to me is that she was doing this as an older woman, as a woman who was definitely past childbearing age, and that's so countercultural on a lot of levels that the way she dealt with it was sort of by pretending that it had all happened by accident. She would present herself during these days of absolute mega stardom as just a kindly grandmother who lived in Devon and enjoyed cream teas and who liked dogs and who never actually came out and said, goodness, look what I've created. So I'd like to go back now to look at her marriages, particularly her first one. And you mentioned that getting married was the biggest priority in terms of what her parents wanted for her life. Can you tell us about her first marriage and how it reflects society's expectations of what women should do at that time? Yes. Well, uh, she came out onto the marriage market in trying circumstances because by this point, her father had died and the family had lost their money. So they were they were going downhill socially. And yet Agatha was still expected to try to marry up, to try to get back status in that way. Um, so she was on the Edwardian marriage market, going to country house parties, that sort of thing. And she received nine proposals, actually. Nine. <laughs> she would she'd sometimes um dismiss people in the just the funniest way. People don't realise what a funny writer Agatha Christie is, actually, because a lot of people have come to her stories through television adaptations, um, which which 
sometimes play down the lightness, the humour of it. Anyway, one young man asked her to marry him and she said, you know, it's an awfully silly thing to ask a girl to marry her like this. We've only known each other for 10 days. Don't be such a fool. That's how she turned down one of the suitors. Anyway, along came the 10th man and he wasn't quite what her mother would have wanted because he was from a slightly lower social class than her. He was somebody whose family worked for a living. Uh, But in his favour... He was incredibly hot. He was extremely handsome. And Agatha was head over heels with him, partly because um, he, he, he was so good looking and partly because there was this sort of practical air to him because he was a pilot, right? <laughs> it's like the scene in Top Gun. <laughs> uh, it was, except it all happened in uh, a ballroom in Devon in a country house in 1912. But she walked into this ballroom and here is this dashing young pilot swept off her feet. He rode a motorbike and she loved speed, actually. It's one of the things that go against people's idea of her as the little old grandmother. She, she liked fast cars. Um, I was told by one of her family members that, uh, she got this new car in the 1960s and this little boy, as he was at the time, would get lifts with her and he would encourage her to break the speed limit. 85 miles, they would be dashing along the new M4 motorway. That, that was the truth of her, uh, which <laughs> goes against the grain when you, if you think of her as she was in later life as um, a sort of formidable looking old lady with cat's eye spectacles and wearing a fur coat and pearls and being sort of kind of stayed in her in her personal appearance. So um, she she fell in love with this guy. Archibald Christie was his name. And they did get married. There was a lot of toing and froing actually, because non, neither of the families were particularly happy about what they saw as this um, slightly ill-matched uh, couple. And perhaps they wouldn't have done had it not been for World War One, Because what happened was that Archibald Christie was sent off to France. He was no longer a pilot by this point, actually. He was in the administrative part of the Royal Flying Corps. And after the first few months of the war, he came back at Christmas and something something had changed within him. What, what he'd seen, what he'd experienced, he said, no, we've got to get married at once. It was a very quick, hasty wartime marriage, like many others. And like many other hasty wartime marriages, it wasn't going to last all of that long. And before we come on to the decline, I wanted to talk quickly about Agatha's own experiences of wartime, because she volunteers, doesn't she, in the Red Cross. Can you tell us a bit about her experiences? I sort of don't think it's possible to overestimate just how important World War One was in the creation of Agatha Christie as a person. Um, with uh, Archie away serving in France, she wanted to do something as well. So she volunteered at the field hospital that had been set up in Torquay. She started at the bottom, washing the floors. She would use this experience in her fiction later on. In so many of her novels, you find little snatches of real life, um, fictional nurses. Um, and then she progressed to actually treating patients. And this was hard work. She describes having to take a man's amputated leg down to the furnace in the hospital for it to be burnt. And she describes how one of her patients died after three days of her personal care. And I think historians more recently have come to realise that the trauma of war, it clearly affected men and everybody knows about shell shock, but it actually affected women too, in a way that nobody really wanted to talk about at the time. Um, there's a historian called Christine Hallett, whose work I'm particularly drawing on here. And the the nurses, even 
if they weren't at the front line, Agatha was in Torquay, the nurses in the in the hospitals would experience things like the bodies of young men, naked, dirty, wounded, stuff that no nice young lady like Agatha had ever expected to witness. And then they had to go home to their families. And they could not distress their families by describing what they'd seen, right? They had to keep this horror within the hospital. They had to sort of contain it. And I think this act of containment, you know, experiencing one thing, but not being able to talk about it, having a secret, being not quite what you've seen from the outside, this is going to be essential to all of the characters she's going to produce as a detective novelist. And then her time in the hospital was particularly important because after a while, she got herself trained as a pharmacist's assistant. So she got a a job in the part of the hospital where the medicines were mixed. You couldn't go and buy branded medicines then. They had to be literally mixed. And this involves handling really dangerous, strong drugs and getting the medicine made correctly without making any mistakes. So she was handling poisons. And she tells us herself that during the the longers of her time working in the pharmacy, she would pick up a pen and she'd start to write stuff. And one of the things that she wrote was her very first published detective novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. And guess what? It features a young lady who works in a hospital as a dispenser and it features a death by poisoning. The aspects of her relationship with poisoning that I found really interesting was how poisoning fed into fears of society at the time that had started in the Victorian era, particularly about the idea of strangers coming into your home. Can you expand on that a bit for us? Well, I think that the whole genre of detective fiction goes hand in hand with modernity, what we might call modern life. So in the 18th century, you would probably have lived in a village if you were British. And it's likely that your main fears would have been dying of famine or disease or maybe in a war. But by the time we get into the 19th century, people are much more likely to be living in towns and their lives are cleaner and safer and more comfortable. And there's a police force and there's gaslighting and there's drains and there's all that. And this kind of opens up space inside people's minds for more arcane fears to take root. It's a luxury, actually, if you think about it. If you're facing life and death every day, the last thing you want to do is read about fictional death. But in a world where your life is clean and comfortable, you can kind of indulge yourself in worrying about that creepy man who lives next door. And it's creepier still to think that perhaps danger is present within your own home. In the 19th century, the domestic sphere, I'm massively oversimplifying this, but the domestic sphere, certainly according to the rhetoric of Victorian society, is, is, is where women are supposed to live their lives, where they're supposed to be at their best, if you like. And it's a sphere that they control. So when female novelists start writing detective fiction, it's kind of natural that they set their stories within the home. And also this appeals to a new market of female readers too. And it's natural that the weapons that they look to are not guns or uh, acts of uh, physical violence. They're they're womanly weapons like, like poisoning. And if you are a Victorian person and you believe that an Englishman's home is his castle, then perhaps your greatest fear might be the penetration of your castle and being poisoned by somebody who's close to you. Because poisoning has to be done by somebody who's like your doctor or your parlour maid or or perhaps your your spouse, somebody who has access to 
quality of food. So um, detective fiction brings the dangers of nature, if you like, and situates them within the world that you know that you inhabit every day. If you're the kind of person who has the time and the leisure and the money to buy books and to read them for fun. And continuing to think about homes then, something that really struck me is how Agatha loves to buy a house. She buys so many of them. Can you tell us a bit about her relationship with the home and how this reflects changing ideas about what home means, particularly after the wars? Well, because Agatha wasn't really sent properly to school, um, her her childhood home was was her entire world to her. And it was a world where her, her mother was very much in control. She had this dominant, powerful, intuitive kind of um, woman who was who was her mother. And it's very notable that in Agatha's first detective story, which is also set in a home, it's a home where there's the women are in charge. It's a matriarchy. The, the men in the family are all a bit, all a bit useless and hopeless, actually. And uh, homes would continue to be really important in Agatha's fiction, not least because they provided her with a close cast of characters, which is really helpful to a detective story. You need a sort of limited number of suspects. And her interest in homes carried on both in fiction and in real life because she became, as you suggest, this sort of almost compulsive homemaker. She loved buying houses um, as she got richer. It's one of the ways in which she indulged herself. She, she loved shopping. She had a very sort of relatable weakness for buying things that she didn't need. My goodness, I, I feel that weakness in myself, uh, although I didn't shop on the scale that she did. And at one point in the 1930s, she actually owned eight different properties. She just couldn't sort of help herself from buying them. Um, and after the war, she kind of settled down into two larger places of residence. One of them was this fantastic country house called Greenway that's run by the National Trust today. It's so beautiful. It's in Devon. It's on the banks of the River Dart. It's a sort of Georgian mansion with wonderful gardens. Uh, and a lot of people go there and think, oh yeah, this, this, is, this is how she lived. Actually, that's not the case. That was just her holiday home. And she really lived, as it were, really did her work somewhere much more private because she was a very private, elusive sort of person after the public shaming of 1926 that I'm sure we're going to come on to. Uh, she lived in uh, the town of uh, Wallingford in Oxfordshire in a smaller, um, more, more understated uh, home. But in the homes of her fictional characters, death is death is everywhere. The murder weapons that she chooses are very often found round the home. The poison that would have been found in things like rat poison or the sort of paint you might use to change the colour of a hat. But there are also things like um the the knob from the end of a bedstead. Uh often Agatha's homes are places of death. Oh, what's your favourite murder weapon she's ever included? Oh well, uh, I'll, I'll I go to I go to dob her in now because sometimes it's fair to say that despite the research she did to make her plot stand up, and she was very good at that. Occasionally, just occasionally, she makes a mistake. And in the story of Death on the Clouds, the murder weapon is a blowpipe for um, uh, blowing out poisoned poison darts. And she was under the misapprehension that a blowpipe could be hidden down the side of the seat in an aeroplane. Actually, that would be way too short. Blowpipes are really about six feet long, which would not hide very well within within an aircraft's cabin. <laughs> 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. She was famous for being very good at cleaning the finds, particularly these delicate ivories that they discovered. And that's such a striking image of Agatha Christie, the archaeologist. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, we've been dancing around 1926 for some time now, so I think it's time to delve into the mystery. And famously, her 11-day disappearance happens in this year. Can you give us the background that leads to her vanishing? So this mysterious disappearance of 11 days when there was a national manhunt for her and she was eventually found uh, staying under a false name in a hotel in Harrogate. This is very often presented... And this is, this is, this is, it seems to me like the central injustice of Agatha Christie's life, despite her fame and her success and all of that sort of thing. This still seems to me something that's basically wrong that people think about her that needs to be overturned. A lot of people would tell you that this all happened because uh, she wanted to frame her cheating husband for her murder. And that's what the newspapers said at the time. And that's a narrative that's been picked up in so many other books about her. And when I started out my research for this book, I I was open to that suggestion. Um, There have recently been quite a lot of depictions of Agatha Christie in, in popular culture that come from a feminist place, actually, where she is depicted as having done this, but fair dues. He was a cheating rat and he deserved it. He, he just told her that he was leaving her for a younger woman. Um, but that is so not consistent at all with what I found in her personal archive and in the evidence from the time. What I believe happened was so different to that as to be night from day. In the year 1926, she had 
she had become a successful novelist. She was under a lot of pressure to keep producing. Um, in 1926, her mother died. She was bereaved. There are no good circumstances for a parent to die, right? But Agatha had been particularly close to this mother, huge influence on her life. And she went into an episode of what today would probably get described as depression. She reports oh, forgetfulness, tearfulness, insomnia, and inability to cope with normal life. And some newspapers reported this. They, they said uh, Agatha Christie, the famous novelist, has had a breakdown and unfortunately, it turned out that her husband, Archie, couldn't cope with this. He wasn't an emotionally literate man. He wasn't able to give her the support that um, she needed in her bereavement. And then he announced, worse than that, he was leaving her. He'd met this this woman. He was a golfer, was Archibald Christie. And he'd fallen in love with another golfer whose name was Nancy. She was 10 years younger than Agatha. He was going off with her. And Agatha became very low. And what happened on the 3rd of December was that her mental state became low enough that she actually considered suicide. And she entered, I believe, into a particular condition that's called the fugue state. Now, this is very, very rare, a fugue state. And in it, as it's been explained to me by psychiatrists, as I understand it, you you step right outside your normal self. You adopt another persona so that you don't have to think about the trauma, the pain you've been experiencing in your current situation. So she adopted a new persona. She gave herself a new name. She traveled to the town of Harrogate where there was, it had a reputation for medical excellence. It was the sort of place where you went if you were ill to get better. And there she did go to the the, the health spa and she tried to recover her lost her lost health. Now, that's not framing your cheating husband for, you, for murder. That is living with a really serious mental health condition. And as the 11 days came to an end, as she was forced to return to her true self, that is when the pain would really have begun because she had to return to this condition of, of, of trauma that she'd, she'd tried to escape from. And it's it's horrific to think about losing yourself in that way. It's horrific to think about the moment when she was reintroduced to her daughter and the daughter, she didn't recognize the daughter. Imagine some of the, the pain and emotion associated with this. And yet the narrative is that she was somehow a bad person who was playing some sort of a trick on the world. Perhaps she was doing it to frame the husband. Perhaps she was doing it to get attention to sell novels. And another thing that really annoys me, Rhiannon, is that it's often said that Agatha never spoke about this incident again for the rest of her life, which is not true. In fact, it's almost comically untrue because very shortly afterwards, um, with the divorce case coming up, she needed to get custody of her daughter. So she needed to do something about this reputation she had developed as a bad person um, there were lots of strands to it. I can see where it came from because um, she was from a higher social class, which would have been, you know, a point in her favour, except that the general strike had just happened and everybody was a bit fed up with poshos. Uh, she was uh, a working woman, very dodgy. She was a detective novelist. Surely there's something a bit tricksy about a person like that. And when she had disappeared, she'd left her daughter behind. 
bad mother. And so if you're coming up for a divorce case, you can imagine thinking, gosh, I need to, I need to put my side of the story. So she did. And she gave an interview in the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail that's read by millions of people. And this interview reads to me like she was saying to the judge in the divorce case, look, really, this is what happened. I experienced suicidal thoughts and I was terribly ill. And I, 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 I'm a human being here. I'm, I'm not a, not a bad person. Um, and she did get custody of her daughter in the divorce, but imagine being in that situation. Really horrible. And of course, millions of people read this interview. It's just that they didn't believe it. She was not listened to. Why was it they didn't listen to her? Because it didn't fit the story that everybody had in their heads. And it is a much better story that she had framed the cheating husband for her murder. And it's if you think today how difficult it is for people to talk about mental health conditions, how many assumptions there are about good mothers, bad mothers, women who work, women who don't work, women who earn money, women who are rich. There's there's a lot of difficulties even today in thinking about a woman who would have been in that position. And in 1926, it was way worse. So you mentioned that there is this idea that she's a bad mother. Could we say there is even a kernel of truth in that with her unconventional approach to motherhood? I don't think there is such a thing as a bad mother, right? There, there are just mothers and sometimes they have good days and sometimes they have bad days. So was she, she wasn't a conventional mother. In what she writes about motherhood, she doesn't take the party line, if you like. She never describes it in sort of saintly, saccharine terms. In her fiction, you often see mothers behaving badly towards their children. You often see very, the children themselves doing terrible things. She, she actually produces a child murderer um, later on in her career. Where it gets perhaps closer to home is that she writes about her own daughter in her autobiographical writing. And there are hints of this relationship coming up in her fiction too, which are not, are not pristine. They're not glossy. They're not perfect. And I can see that uh, being a family member of Agatha Christie's or in fact of any novelists is probably a tricky position to be in because you're going to be mined for information. Um, one of the things that makes reading her books so much more enjoyable once you know about her life is that you see snippets of real life popping up the whole time. It's like, it's like bingo on, on almost every page. You can say, ah, oh, yes, that, that, that really happened. That really happened. And part of the reason I think that she has this reputation somehow for duplicity is that she, she did write her own autobiography, but it's a very tricksy source. Because sometimes parts of it are demonstrably wrong, like the year in which something happened uh, can be disproved. But that wasn't important to her. She was writing her autobiography as a novelist. So it's kind of emotionally true. And sometimes her fiction is literally true. For her, the line between fact and fiction wasn't quite hard and fast. And, you know, that's that's the source of her brilliance, I suppose. Part of her story that I found so fascinating and really unexpected for me as a self-confessed Agatha Christie beginner was that she was so global. How did her relationship with her second husband take her to all four corners of the globe? Well, after the, the bad stuff of 1926, I'm kind of happy for Agatha that she had this whole second chance at life and love when she met her second husband, who was an archaeologist. And 
with him, she traveled extensively. And with him, she would spend part of each year on archaeological digs in Syria and in Iraq. She would use digs to um, as settings for her fiction. And archaeology became so important to her that I think one of the ways in which she's been underestimated, in fact, is as a funder of 20th century archaeology. Because when her husband was was digging, she would basically pay for the digs. She made them financially possible, partly to please him, partly because she found um, archaeology personally interesting, and partly because she enjoyed the life she was able to live on the dig, where she was treated as just another member of the team. She would do the photography. She would do the drawings. Um, she was famous for being very good at cleaning the finds, particularly these delicate ivories that they discovered at um, the site of Nimrud or, or Kalu, as it's called today in Iraq. She would clean them with a little brush and some face cream. And that's such a striking image of Agatha Christie, the archaeologist. It really sticks in the mind. It is from her autobiography. You'll read that many, many times. But I think that completely downplays the fact that she was only there in the first place because she'd provided the money for the expedition to happen. Um, she operates on many layers simultaneously. And the layers that she talks about, the cleaning of the fines with the face cream, that's the socially acceptable layer. It was less socially acceptable then. In fact, it would even be difficult for people to talk about it today, I think, um, that she was a female breadwinner who was basically bankrolling her husband's career. And as part of her travels, she met people of many different nationalities. But her work does reflect a lot of prejudices held by people of 20th century Britain. Can you tell us a bit about those views? It's one of the reasons for reading Agatha Christie, actually, which is to understand how the racial politics of middle-class white people of Britain have played out throughout the 20th century. And her publishing history reflects that as well, because she she was writing about the world of her, her first readers who were in Britain and America, largely people who looked and sounded like her, basically. Um, what you can see throughout the years that she was writing is, is a gradual sort of liberalizing of views, I suppose. A, a big mistake that people make is that they think that all of the stories are set in roughly 1935. And I'm pretty much that's because of the TV adaptations that were on on Sunday nights, um, that maybe your grandparents used to watch with, with Suchet and it all appeared to be 1935. And there was always a lovely vintage car and it was all set in a vicarage somewhere in the home counties. Actually, the act, the real books span a much wider chronological spread than that. Uh, after the war, for example, you can see books where there are more Iraqi characters, and in their in their archaeological life, you can see Max and Agatha gradually coming to terms with the fact that the attitudes of the pre-war archaeology were, were no longer were no longer acceptable. Things like where the finds ought to end up change over time. The whole history of 20th century archaeology actually is sort of captured in the life of Agatha Christie. And how does she write about the British Empire? She's an observer of the British Empire. She <laughs> she was in 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 the early 1920s, her husband 
this is the first husband, Archie. He got a job um, which was to travel around the whole globe, drumming up support for the famous Empire exhibition that was held at Wembley in uh, 1924. And Agatha went with him. And her letters from this trip um, describe the sort of expatriate life that she encountered in South Africa, in Australia, in in Canada. And she always takes a sort of left field view of these of these people. Because Agatha Christie never takes anyone at face value. She's always she's always looking for the funny side, the secret that's being covered up, what's not being what's not being said. So when she when the empire pops up as a concept in her books, it's usually from a slightly subversive point of view. That it's it's strange how as she became more popular, as she became this global entertainment brand, some of the subtlety of her work got diminished. Some people might think that an Agatha Christie story is going to be on the side of the British Empire, which it isn't really. It's a little bit more subtle and complicated than that. She sees she sees the flaws. And how does she reflect the Second World War in her work? When the Second World War happened, Agatha, once again, as, as many people who'd, who'd experienced the First World War did actually decided i want to i want to be part of the war effort again i need to volunteer so actually she went back to her old job she started working in the hospital pharmacy again she was in london for the very tail end of the blitz uh and then she was in london for several wartime years while her second husband max um was using his language skills to go um he he served in um egypt and in north africa his archaeological experience of those cultures um, stood him in good stead for that. So the Second World War was a very difficult time for her because she was alone. She was somebody who needed support. Remember what happened when Archie withdrew his support in 1926? That there, there are hints in the Second World War that she was shaky again in herself. And there was a tragedy in the family because her daughter married, uh, had a son, and uh, the husband was was killed. He was killed in Normandy in 1944. So Agatha was was faced with having this daughter and grandson who she had to step forward and give all sorts of practical help as well. And after the war is over, you begin to see some of this trauma, some of these dislocations coming through in the writing as well. Um, a story that a lot of people enjoy very much is called A Murder is Announced. And it's set in one of Christie's famous villages uh, in the post-war period. But there's there's slippage, there's dissonance. This cast of characters are clearly uh, troubled by the dislocations of the war. The middle class are no longer able to maintain the same standards of living. There are people coming into the village who in the past would have had letters of introduction, but now who are unknown. There's a lot of people moving about in um, society who, who have secrets and pasts that are all going to, all going to come out. And in a way, nostalgia begins to become part of the Christie brand after the war, in a way it completely hadn't been before the war when she was a modern writer. And one of the things people forget today is that she she reads like historical crime fiction, cosy crime, crime says in the past, but at the time she was writing, it wasn't the past. It was, it was like reading... Um, it's like watching Line of Duty, something that is set in the present day to to her readers. So the world that they were living in in the 50s, the world of post-war Britain is absolutely captured in her books. 
So thinking now about the end of Agatha's life, what kind of legacy does she leave? It's amazing to think that Agatha Christie was still writing books into her 80s. And her publishers began to get a bit worried because it it was clear that the books weren't as good as they used to be. But weirdly, she'd become such a powerful brand by this point that it didn't matter. Um, this, this book was published in um, the 1970s called Passenger to Frankfurt, uh, I, I personally think it's, it's bonkers. And, and her, clearly her publishers did too, and they're a bit worried about it. But it was a huge, it was on the bestseller list for six months. And they had to apologize to her. They had to say, this super old lady, mm, you know, we were a bit worried about your book. Well, actually, it's done better than any of your books that have done so far. So I, I enjoy that, that sort of level of success she was still achieving. But the quality of the writing actually may have a sadder explanation. It actually is pretty heartbreaking. Because if you look at the, if you analyse the language that she's using in her later books, it becomes repetitive. It becomes a lot simpler. She'd always been a simple writer, but now it becomes super simple. And there are other sources that suggest that actually she was entering into the early stages of dementia. When she did finally die, she had uh, a death that was possibly as easy as any death could be, which was that she was being looked after by her um, her much younger husband, who kept up his end of the bargain, looked after her until her dying day, and he was um, they 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 just had they just had lunch together, and she died very peacefully and without any kind of a struggle. And the two of them are, are buried right next door to each other in the graveyard of the Church of Saint Mary's near where they lived in Wallingford. And why do you think it is that her work is so popular today then? I think her work's still popular today for several reasons. Um, firstly, there's the clarity and the simplicity of the language, which means part that partly explains its global success. She's a very easy writer to read. And a lot of she works well in translation. A lot of people around the world have have learnt English through reading Agatha Christie. Um, secondly, there's the formal brilliance at the plotting. Uh, we haven't talked about this, but there's a kind of crosswordy algebraic um, quality to her stories where everything finally fits into place. And you think at the end, oh, that's the secret. That's the, bing- that's the bingo moment. But then there's thirdly, there's the view of human nature, which is that darkness lies within. It lies within the home. It lies within all of us. And that's 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 just that's just kind of true she can be read as a conservative writer but actually a lot of people who who perhaps see themselves as outsiders and basically who doesn't they they will see themselves in in the characters there everybody is is performing an act in life everybody is pretending to be together and successful and uh, smooth, and <laughs> in my case, the sort of historian who would give an, give an interview to the BBC History Extra podcast. But do you know what? Ev- everybody underneath is a red hot mess. Everybody underneath has secrets. Everybody underneath has got something that they're covering up, something to hide. And, and that's the Christian view of the world. And do you know what? It resonates. Definitely. And as a historian, then, what's the benefit of studying her work and her life? What can it tell us about these really tumultuous times that she lived through? I think she's worth studying because she's there in the background of a lot of a lot of our lives today, and 
someone who's a cultural phenomenon like that is worth taking seriously, is worth investigating. And, and you will find her now on university syllabuses and that sort of thing. She, she's now considered worthy of study now that the canon of great literature has expanded and middle-brow female writers are allowed to be on a syllabus in the way that they, they weren't in the past. And I think it's important because her life and her work does provide this wonderful record of what white middle-class British people thought about things throughout the 20th century. It, it, it can help to, it helps you understand where, where we are in the world today. And that's on top of the fact that you can get huge amounts of pleasure and enjoyment out of reading. The, some, some of them are just works of art. They're so exquisitely crafted machines for giving you pleasure and entertainment. That was Lucy Worsley. Her new book, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman, is published by Hodderin Stoughton and went on sale yesterday. You can also read a version of this interview in BBC History Magazine's November issue, which is on sale at the end of this month. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Listener.